Let's read Amos uh, chapter 6. I'll read verses um, 1 to 9. Amos 6 verses 1 to 9. Hear God's word. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named the chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Calne and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seat of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock, and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the viol, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the excellency of Jacob, and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And so on uh, reads Uh, the word of uh, God Uh, will refer to other parts of uh, the chapter uh, as we go through it. But we're looking at Amos chapter 6 and uh, the theme really is found in verse 1 in the way that Amos uh, opens this part of the prophecy. Amos uh, 6 verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Now we come to the prophet Amos, and I hope in looking at this middle section of it, it will give us a better understanding of the whole message as we have read through the book. Uh, together. Uh, Amos was from Judah, the southern kingdom, but he was called to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. The way that God's nation was split in two at this time was that there were ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and the southern kingdom was simply called Judah. And those ten northern tribes were called Israel. That happened one generation or so after the life of Solomon and split uh, the nation. Um, Israel, you may know, was less faithful over the period or declined more quickly than Judah. Uh, Judah remained faithful for a few centuries more, but eventually fell herself and she was taken into Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar during the life of Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. 
This portion here is before all of that, when Israel, the ten tribes, are still intact outwardly, but you can see from the severe words of the prophets towards her that God is going to dismantle the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos prophesied at the same time as Isaiah, or in the same lifespan as Isaiah and Joel. So these prophets are speaking to Israel and Judah at the same time. Amos is sent by God to Israel. And Israel at the time that Amos is speaking these words was very successful. You sometimes find that before a great judgment of God, that there's a kind of rise in affluence and ease and success materially you saw, you, uh, before you see a judgment come. Uh, because people usually decline spiritually when they ascend that way. You see that in the, the Greek Empire, in Alexander the Great. You see that in the Roman Empire. Famously, the, Rome, the, the Roman Empire fell when it had endured a couple of centuries of what one of their own famous poets called bread and circuses. That by the end of the Roman Empire, far from being the legal and military might that it once was, it had become a place where people just wanted to be entertained. Feed us and entertain us. Give us bread and give us circuses. And many people believe that's why that empire weakened, as the prophecy of Daniel said it would. It was iron and clay. And as America is, or as any empire is, that gives itself over to that lifestyle. Israel was gaining that affluence kind of like a 20th century America, growing in economy, outwardly evangelical and believing in God, um, reigning over surrounding nations. Its capital was Samaria, which is mentioned in the first verse. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who trust in Mount Samaria. And that's, that's the capital city. So the, the people were trusting in their nation, in their capital, in the government of their nation, in the worship of their nation, in the leaders of their nation, especially the elite at the top who are mainly fired upon here by Amos in their luxury. It's the elite that are in focus mostly in chapter 6. But Samaria is there as the governmental capital. Bethel, which is a name you know, was the worship capital. Uh, it was the place in the past where Jacob had met God. Now that place remained and was on the border with Judah. And what happened was a prior king to the current king, Jeroboam II, who was a contemporary of Amos, the prior king had constructed two new centers of worship, one way up in the north uh, in Dan and one at Bethel right on the border near Jerusalem. And the idea was he, he placed a calf in the north and one in the south. And this was to keep the Israel, Israeli people happy with their own nation and independent and functioning by themselves and not going down to Jerusalem to have to go down to the temple there. But they would do it their own way. And he constructed it. It's kind of, I, I, I can't find a rationale as I studied this where a king could read Exodus and Deuteronomy and think that this was 
this was a good idea that he built two golden calves. It's literally what Israel did at the foot of Sinai. Perhaps the only reason is we assume they all knew God's word. Um, there are other kings that found the scroll of Deuteronomy and so on, that it wasn't being read. And maybe the king didn't know what was in the scroll. He might not even have known what had happened at the foot of Mount Sinai. But he did it, and he called these calves Jehovah. So he's telling worshippers to come, as anyone who elaborates upon worship or corrupts worship or changes it, they'll always tell the people, this is the, this is the way to worship God. He's pleased with this. So you would go to the calf, make your sacrifices. Uh, there's historical record that people actually kissed the calves. And they were worshipping so-called Jehovah through uh, these calves. Now, so they had their capital city. They had their golden calves. And in God's providence, they increased in military might. And they actually subdued Edom and Syria and some other nations around them and brought them under tribute. So Israel was doing well, and that, that helped their economy. Uh, they hadn't had a lot of droughts and things like that, so there was a booming economy with crops and fruit and all of these things. So if you'd lived there, and you weren't deeply spiritual, and you didn't have your eye on God's law, you would think, it's like what people say about America, this is a Christian nation. We have our two golden calves of Jehovah, we have an Israeli king on the throne. We have a booming economy, and God is blessing our economy and our crops. And our military is doing well, and our enemies are not only at peace with us, they can't intimidate us because we're stronger than them right now. Now, you can imagine all the spiritual dangers that come with such a situation. Many of, many of the things I just described to you are either directly against God's law or are very spiritually dangerous. They are happy with their cultures, their religious culture and with their economic, political culture. But the question is, where is God in all of that? Everyone says, oh, God's with us and God's with me and I believe in God. But um, as Job would say, go, go and ask the, the fish and the whales in the sea if there's a God. Even they know there's a God. Uh, as James says, even the demons believe. Uh, people want a prize today for giving God the honor of admitting he exists and that they're willing to say so. It doesn't matter. The question is, who is God? What does he require of us? What is his son's name? What is his standard of life? How does he say a nation should be constructed? And what should be our general attitude in life? And what's our condition before him? Those are the things that matter, not that there is a God. So Israel is in this position. And the question is, well, where is God? So God sends his prophet like he did through Isaiah and warned Israel and Judah about the future if they went down this road. That He sent Joel to them to warn them of coming catastrophes because of their lifestyle wave after wave of locust swarm and he sends Amos here he sends him in and obviously a lot said in the prophecy but anchoring ourselves in chapter 6 woe to you is what God says about it that's firstly the divine assessment woe to you God says 
So if you had asked Jeroboam if God was pleased with him, Jeroboam II, he would say yes. If you'd asked Jeroboam and his advisors in his courtroom, um, is God blessing Israel? The answer was yes. Does God go out with the armies of Israel? Yes. Does God send the rain upon you and bless your crops? Yes. Are you the people of God? Yes. But when you ask God, he says, whoa. Now we have to be, all of us need to take that to heart as individuals, as a church, as nation, as denomination. Uh, very easy to fall into this. There's God's assessment, then there's ours. And we scan around and we select various features that we see that we like, or you scan yourself and you, you point out the features that seem to be doing well and you say, well, God is pleased. But when God actually speaks, it's very different. You remember when Jesus went into Nazareth, his hometown when he began his ministry, and uh, they thought they were doing a lot better than the pagan nations around them. And they thought that they were very obedient and good Jews, and they went to synagogue. And Jesus went into his hometown synagogue, and he told them that they were no better than, than, than a Syrian or a Syrophoenician. That he, he, he said, those people are more likely to come into the kingdom because they know they have a need. But you are all full of yourself. You all think you're well. You all think you're obedient. But you don't know that you have leprosy. You don't know that you're in bondage. And their reaction was uh, to gnash their teeth at him and to take him to try and push him off the side of a cliff. That, and that's God. You know, Jesus is going in there. He is God. How different sometimes are people's conceptions of themselves and what God says to us in Christ. Woe is the divine assessment. Like Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, in, well, in Luke's account of it, where he says to the people in Luke chapter 6, He lifted up his eyes towards his disciples. This is the second half where he pronounces the woes. Listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you who are rich. But I thought being rich was a blessing. No, woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Luke 6 verse 24. Woe to you who laugh now. You shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. How different Jesus' assessment is. That's not even my own assessment of myself. All men may speak well of me. Other people are making assessments. They all speak well of me. I'm full. I'm blessed. God is blessing my household. I've advanced. I can help others and bless my neighbor with the riches I have. But there are things that can be very wrong in that and the false prophets were commended. They were alive at the same time as Amos. They were false prophets who the king actually listened to. So when Amos went in, he wouldn't listen to Amos. But see that. Now, do people out there in the evangelical church or in the reformed church, or me or you, do we have a Christ that says woe? That says woe to our nation? woe to a denomination or woe ever 
to you or me. Because if we've created another Christ that never says that, and he always accepts you and he's always your friend, and there's never any problem, then it's not him. That's actually a golden calf that's been made. Woe to you, he says. Remember what he said to the Pharisees. They were very religious. They were actually very wealthy, very knowledgeable. They knew the Bible back to front. And you remember in Matthew 23, he just utterly condemns them. Woe after woe after woe. I think there's eight of them. Woe as you pray on the street and so on. Woe who think you are rich. You are nothing but whitewashed sepulchers that men walk over and contain dead men's bones. Woe to you that tithe mint, cumin, and dill, but neglect the weightier matters of the law, like love, justice, and mercy. So Israel is like this, and God says, Woe. Why does he say woe to them this way? It's because they're at ease. Woe to you who are at ease. And the reason they are at ease is that they feel secure. That's in the second line. It's a parallelism. Woe to you who are at ease and trust in Mount Samaria. They feel secure. They're trusting not in God, not in Christ. They're trusting in Mount Samaria. Their government, the national government or church government, they're trusting in the worship centers that were there. They're trusting in their economy that it's going well and that their military can protect them. They're trusting in those things that are called here Mount Samaria. Not Jerusalem, not God's actual holy temple, not the presence of God, but they trust in the organization of their nation and church. We trust in Mount Samaria, and God says that what that causes then is they are sitting there at ease. They're, they're saying things are well, and I'm secure, and I'm not spending all of my time worrying and having to defend myself or worrying about my bank account. I have a good base here. Now I can build upon this. I'm at ease. And God says unto them, Woe, you who are at ease, because you trust in Mount Samaria. There is a security that's right and that God gives. It's not wrong to want to be secure. The thing I'm describing is what our catechism calls a carnal security. A true security from Scripture isn't in any of those things I just listed to you. Our true security of soul, of soul, derives from a deep love for a knowing Jesus Christ and through him knowing God. Because of his deep and unchanging love for my soul that I've experienced and known his immense forgiveness, having received him and sensing that I am held in the secure hand of Jesus Christ. So it's not wrong to want to be secure, but what I just described to you there is the place of security. Christ doesn't really promise anything for our body or our bank account or our or our church and national situation. Um, just ask the prophet Daniel. Just ask Amos. He doesn't guarantee those things. He may give them and bless them. But ultimately, it's soul security that God gives. 
All other things can happen to us. We can be arrested like Paul and go through two years of court dates and then be beheaded by Nero. And, and, and that doesn't mean we're not blessed. But what did Paul have? He had soul security. Amos and Daniel have soul security. John the Baptist, when he laid his head down before Herod's executioner, had soul security. It's our soul. That's, that's it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he hasn't sorted out his soul. It's the soul that's actually valuable. It's sin that makes us think these pathetic things are actually very valuable. It's our soul that's valuable. Dark, sinful, and condemned, or regenerated, justified, adopted, and loved. That's your prized possession. But they are at ease in Zion because they are trusting in the things of the flesh. They are not secure in the salvation of Jesus Christ. They are secure in their own life and attainments and securities and substance. How careful you and I must be. How repetitive Jesus is and the apostles in warning us against leaning on and trusting in these things. How, how, how severe and how dangerous this is. Now what's the problem then if people are putting their security in these things? What's the problem with with wealth and an economy and affluence and growth and a military like they had, or a church that's doing very well as a denomination that has lots of money and organization and so on. What's wrong with trusting in those things? Well, when we trust in, for example, wealth, it leads to all kinds of other things. You come into some money or you get a promotion or you have a decent amount of money saved away you might have something very substantial there. And wealth brings power, ability, and mobility, and control. It's what the rich young ruler had. He, he had youth and power and position. And he said, what thing do I lack? Well, he lacked the thing I described to you. These people in Amos's time had grown in their standard of living and they went along to their temple rituals and did the god bit and then they went to work i read this morning in our sequential reading you remember what they were all saying when will the new moon be over and when will the sabbath be over that we may trade business was booming they loved being active they loved rolling up their hands and selling their grain and their fruit in their stalls and their businesses and it got to the point where they're going along to a new moon that's appointed by God. It, it, that, that is a worship appointed by God. But they're going along and doing it regarding this golden calf. And while they're doing it, they're thinking, glad we're doing this, we pay our dues to God. But I wish this, I wish this would be over, you know, over soon because I can't wait to get back to work. I just love my job. Why? Why do you love your job so much? Well, it's going well. I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Why? We're making a lot of money, but we give a lot of it to charity and so on. Business is booming. Our company is seven times what it was ten, ten years ago. It's a lot bigger. God has blessed us. Have you ever heard that? Have you said that to yourself? Oh, God has blessed you. What about the rich man that fared sumptuously and didn't even notice Lazarus at his gate? Was God blessing him? What about the man who's 
Fields yielded plenty, and he said, I'll build bigger barns. Did that all happen because he was on good terms with God? There's all kinds of reasons that business might be booming and that a nation might be doing well according to that definition. Power and ability and control, mammon, mammon, then we trust in it. Because when you've got that money or that position or you're in an environment where it's all going well, you begin to trust in it. They like their lifestyle and form of worship um, and they trust in these things. That trust is usually coupled with self-righteousness that's hidden away, it, but it's there. Self-righteousness. So that person hasn't come face to face with Christ because if they had, they would fall on their face in conviction. They would know that they're worthy of wrath and judgment. And Jesus has extended an offer of salvation to them and saved them. And, and they knew that their righteousness was as filthy rags. But what you find in the person who is at ease and is in carnal security is that there's self-righteousness and pride underneath this trust in all this uh, mammon. Ease and security. In verse 8, God calls it pride. Or in the, in the King James Version, the excellency or the affluence of Jacob. The pride or the excellency. It's a kind of a version of self-love. Things are going wonderful, and I am wonderful, and God has done wonderful things for me. Now, we always have to be careful. You know that God does bless some people with um, high-end jobs and governmental positions, or they might, they might run a massive corporation. Um, he blesses people even financially. That's so in the Bible. But listen to God's wisdom on this. If you have money, I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm saying uh, be careful with it that, this, that you, spiritually you are intact and healthy. Uh, we're warned in the Bible in the book of Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches because we can't handle either. If we, if we have riches, our hearts are lifted up against God. If we have poverty, then we panic and have unbelief and then we're tempted to steal. That's what Proverbs says. But there, there's some wisdom from God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. If you have riches, it, it brings so many other burdens with it. We all think it would be good to have, but um, all of those accounts and investments, and if you have a company, being responsible for all these employees and sleepless nights, and, uh, and then you buy nice things like beautiful houses and beautiful cars and so on. And they all bring their own burdens with it too because you have to keep them all that way. And then every couple of years you need to replace them. It's not, it brings with it all manner of trouble. If God blesses someone with it, so be it. But maybe we're not meant to seek these things. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And Jesus warns us too. And this is solemn, that uh, I've heard it said from pulpits before that being wealthy is kind of neutral. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about being at ease or having a lot of these things you can trust in. 
um, because the rich person can be as spiritual as the poor person and so on. Um, I know why people say that, but Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now the thing Christ is pointing out there is the man's security. He's not going to pivot and go through the eye of the needle or the narrow gate into the kingdom of God. Why? He doesn't need to. It's hard to convince him he needs to. Why? Because everything's going well for him. And that's why Jesus warns against it. It fills a life and it turns the person who has it into a kind of demagogue. And they think all is well. And then you say to them, you need Christ. And there is no inclination in them uh, to accept that they might need Christ. So let's just be careful with uh, those things. Um, that wealth and that economy and that political security that was in Samaria, it gave people a very high standard of living that they thought God was on their side and things going well and other people worked for them, as you see in the, the other chapters, and it put them at ease. And that's a really bad word in the Old Testament. Ease. It speaks of Sodom. Ease is um, sometimes connected in, in, in um, the Old Testament to a fattened heart, like the kind we sung about. Um, and they have fattened themselves up. It's, a, it's an insensitive heart that's proud and presumptuous and thinks all is well. Now, there's a problem there because God says that that ease and that fatness of heart at the end of verse 6 results in them not being grieved for the affliction of Joseph. I think Joseph is just another word for Israel there, but he's called Joseph there um, because in Genesis, Joseph was afflicted. And the picture is that Joseph's brothers weren't grieved for him. They just, they, they ignored his cries for justice. They were just hard-hearted and full of themselves and proud and hated him. And they said, we don't need to listen to Joseph. So the, the idea is that something is crying out to be heard. And these people just say, I'm, I'm not listening to that. That's where ease and fatness of heart and hardness of heart leads. Now, how were they living? How were they living? How does God assess their lifestyle? Uh, in verse 3, they put far off the day of doom. The day of evil, the day of the arrival of God's judgment. In verse 4, look at how they're living. They lie on beds of ivory, expensive artistic furnishings made of ivory. They love these. And they're lying there, eating lambs from the flock, feasting calves from the midst of the stall, the best meat, the lambs and the calves. And they are singing a lot because there's nothing else to do when, when you're relaxing and it's other people that are working for you and you're not worrying about what's going on in the church or in the nation. 
you're there in your high position and you're just at ease singing idly to the sound of musical instruments designing musical instruments and making them after the manner of David they're doing uh, all of those things they are drinking wine from the bowl God says in verse 6 not just from cups there there's bowls of wine an abundance of wine and they're just drinking it from bowls they're it's sumptuous they're they're anointing themselves with the best ointments they have luxury and they're pampering themselves verse 7 they recline at banquets those who recline at banquets shall be removed once God's judgment comes now this is a very dangerous place to be not grieved for the affliction of Joseph but fading sumptuously in carnal security and not knowing that God has a controversy with you as a nation or as a church uh, take take um, the nation for example practically the poor were being afflicted we read in our sequential reading this morning that men were being sold off to work just for the price of a sandal that's how much a person was worth the the people were being oppressed we're told in the bible that not many mighty noble and so on are called uh, that it's the poor and the weak uh, but these people who are in high positions are using these weak Israelites so that they can have the lifestyle that they want. Take, for example, in chapter 5, verse 7, uh, God tells us there that they turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. This complete disregard uh, for righteousness. You turn justice to wormwood, lay righteousness in the earth. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, you have built your houses with hewn stone, yet you will not dwell in them. Chapter 5, verse 12. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. You afflict the just, take bribes, and you divert the poor for justice at the gate. The gate was where the courtroom was in Israel, at the gate of the city. So you have people that don't have a lot of spending power, and they've been wronged by their employer or by their neighbor, and, and uh, in marriage or family. There's some law has been broken, and they go for justice at the gate to speak to the judge, and the judge just doesn't care. They don't have money. suppose there's a, a counterpart today as, as to... How can someone afford to even fight a case and have a lawyer and so on when it costs so much and lawyers and courts and so on make so much? But they're just indifferent. You afflict the just and take bribes. This is the moral degeneration that occurs when, some, when a population is not born again, they're outwardly pro-Christian and they're in politics, and they're in justice, and the people of God are in big churches, and there's a lot of money flowing around, and everyone has a beautiful life, and they just don't care that much if a rule is broken or someone is being wronged. They don't care, because that isn't to do with their ease. If you want ease, you're not going to fight for someone for justice. 
you're going to choose your ease. You're just going to be focused on your own life. They are not grieved for the ruin of Joseph because there are members of Joseph, Israel, that have been wronged and that God's law says they should be given recompense. And God hates this because the judges and the rulers were just indifferent to this and turned a blind eye to it. It just wasn't important. Now, is that not the case in a nation like, like today, in our day, where I mentioned it in my prayer, for example, uh, what, um, the abortion rate in the country? What could be more callous and com the complete indifference of justice than being told constantly as they are on Capitol Hill that human beings, the most vulnerable and defenseless human beings made in the image of God, are routinely slaughtered in the womb uh, by medical professionals and by their own parents. And look at how that discussion goes. Is, is the government and is the president, any of the presidents, the last three, are any of them going out of their way to make sure this doesn't happen? No. They sit in restaurants in Connecticut, in Washington, D.C., or in the Bahamas, or in Colorado, or they tour around factories and so on, and they produce their budgets, and then they send billions of dollars to Ukraine, and then they go and make deals with China and turn a blind eye to whatever sins they're involved in and so on. And not, they don't do a thing to stop these children being murdered. They don't do a thing. Now, we're used to it after 50 years of it. We're used to it. It's part of the public discourse and the fiery exchanges of political argument. I don't care what I think of it or what you think of it right now. What, what makes me curious is what God thinks of it and what he's going to do about it. And let no man, whether his surname is Biden or Obama or Trump or whatever the senator or candidate wants to call themselves and what they say to try and get into office, what is God going to do with these powerful people? who are not grieved at the ruin of Joseph. When Joseph is thrown down a well by his brothers and they ignore his pleas for help, and all they did was sell him into slavery and tell his father that he was dead, that was a good outcome compared to what goes on in the womb. And that's only one area. You just go around the courts and go in each city Watch how the good police officers, what they try and do, the ones who have no moral compass and what they do, and all the backhand deals and so on. You go around the businesses today, the dog-eat-dog -dog world. You want to work for a corporation, good luck. You want to be on one of these boards? You want to be on one of these boards? You want, you want to work for an affluent uh, company and then you say or do the wrong thing or ask for the Lord's Day off or... Stand, say, say like what I said there, the slaughter of the children in the womb is wrong and then see what happens to you and see how much the board loves you and see if that company loves you and if it truly is secure and if you are secure in it. They will think nothing of just cutting you off and throwing you on the heap and replacing you with someone who won't cause problems.
they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. But think about the church too. Um, There's a spiritual counterpart to this national indifference to the practical things that go on. Large evangelical churches, some of them involved in politics, filled with hundreds of people, lots of money, huge parking lots, big houses. Reformed churches like our own, our own denomination. Are our people and people in these churches grieved for the ruin of Joseph? Are they grieved how far we've fallen from the Reformation? Are they grieved how much our worship has been compromised? Are they grieved how unlike the apostolic church we often are? Are they grieved that where once, in, you know, entire towns and cities would once make their way to the, the house of worship on the Lord's Day and actually live honorable and at least outwardly godly lives? And now, most Christians don't even know they should, most professing Christians don't even know they have to be in church every Sunday morning. That's ruin. And the way the children are raised and they're not taught anything and then they grow up and they don't see what point Christianity has to them. They're told God has a wonderful plan for their life and then when something goes wrong in their life they question whether God's there because things aren't going well because they were told if you follow God and you love Jesus Christ you will end up working in Mount Samaria and he will bless you and further you and you will be at ease and you will be secure. And you'll be able to tell everyone that you are hashtag blessed. So, is the church even grieved? Is it? I don't see a lot of crying uh, in the church. And, and grieving and wailing. I don't see it. Have you ever cried about the church? Just its condition. I have. Uh, I remember there was a time where the church had gone from such life and purity in Scotland that one of the bigger churches that um, in Glasgow, uh, that they would have a prayer meeting every Sunday night following evening worship to just pray for all the unconverted people that had been in worship that night. In Scotland, uh, un people who weren't saved, unconverted people, un until you know two decades ago, they would still go to church. So evangelistic sermons were preached on a Sunday night. Uh, so a lot of people went to church because their relatives expected them to be there. And it was not the done thing to not go. And after the service, they would meet to pray for the message that had been preached in the hearing of these people. Now, there were times in the past where the preaching was so effective um, and so, so many people were saved. And I remember, I remember a Christian telling me, she, she's a godly woman who set me a, a very good example, a very spiritual woman, that she remembers being in that prayer meeting and um, the elders were praying and almost wailing in tears and very upset that only three people had been saved that night under the preaching. Because they were grieved over the ruin of Jacob. It's not, it's not that they weren't rejoicing that those people were saved. It depends what you're, what you're comparing yourself to. The ignorance of today is, oh, it's meant to be this way. It's not. 
It's not meant to be this way at all. Joseph is being ruined piece by piece, decision by decision, lifestyle by lifestyle. And do we grieve over that? What, what do we grieve over our worship? Do we grieve that these people were saying, our worship's good, our priesthood is good, the calves are good. Do we grieve over these things? Innovations in worship. Um, the lack of a deep conviction in Christians, lack of a depth of knowledge and a thirst for a knowledge of Christ, furnishing oneself with knowledge and experiential knowledge of God, that people know what it is to interact with God and interact with Christ that they know what the presence and power of the Holy Spirit looks like, that we know what worship can be, that the singing of God's praises can be tremendous. It can be deep. It can be emotional. It can be mournful. It can be melancholic. It can be thankful with depths of thanksgiving. What's wrong with the church that she never cries uh, about um, the immense thing Christ did for the believer on the cross or him looking over your sin and bringing you back to your, himself after a time of backsliding. What, what's happened to the church when she doesn't grieve the, the absence and departure of reverence and, and weightiness and substance in the preaching and in the worship and in the witness and in the conversation? Revival only comes when the church grieves. When the prophets preach and the people pray and they're aware of God's absence. Revival only comes then. But they say, well, we, we're happy uh, with our worship. We don't grieve over the affliction of Joseph and we put off the day of doom. Well, that's the nation and the church and their, their condition. And we're told in this uh, chapter, in verse 3, that they keep putting far off the day of doom. And I'm going to close with this. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom and who cause the seat of violence to come near, who cause the judgment to come. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom or the day of the Lord or the possibility of God's judgment the nation and the church today don't think that God judges the uh, the, the nation um, labels everything with Jesus and the presidential candidates say that they own Bibles or that they were brought up in a pres uh, Presbyterian church or that they believe in Judeo-Christian values and they say this and I'm glad it's being said it's better than nothing at all um, I'm glad that they're not outward Satan worshippers. But they don't seem to anticipate that God is dynamic and will intervene. They think this country, they think the problem with this country is just the deficit or something. They have no idea that God can send another virus, that God can send national calamity and flooding and drought, that God can crash this economy with one flinch of his finger and that our entire lifestyle will be turned upside down overnight and none of us will be able to have access to our bank accounts. 
That can happen just like that. And that what will become of America and making it great again then. God warns Samaria here that she is in security and unable to conceive of the fact that God will judge her. He says to her in verse 2, Go over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? They thought they were, because they said, We defeated them. We have them in subjection. They went through something terrible because they don't follow God. We're Israel. Things have gone well for us. And God is saying to them, No, look at Calne and Hamath and Gath. Do you think you're better than them, Israel? You think I'll judge the Philistines, but not judge you? Do you think they'll fall, but you won't? We have similar problems. The, uh, the American nation, if you go to the education system, they'll study the fall of the Greek and Roman Empire, but it only ever happens on a painting. It only ever happens as historical intrigue. They don't think that tomorrow might be the day that we become the next Rome. The church is the same. People may not put off the day of doom, uh, but in a, in a strange way welcome it. We're told elsewhere in the prophecy that there's other people who say, we welcome the day of the Lord. Chapter 5. We welcome the day of the Lord. Uh, bring the day of the Lord. We want to see the nations judged. We want the God of Israel to reveal himself. So they might not say, I don't want to deal with judgment. But they say, right, there is a judgment. Because I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and I believe in Jesus Christ. There is a judgment. But they do the same as what happens in the American schools. They, they think God's judgment is this strange thing in the future. And it's kind of pictured like Michelangelo's, you know, the, the second coming of Christ. Christ comes down and he looks uh, romanticized in the painting and he has his finger out and he separates the sheep from the goats and it's all very ordered and so on. And I, it doesn't have anything to do with me right now. I'll be okay on that day. I'll be okay on that day somehow because I'm a good person and I've, I believe in Jesus. I'll be okay on that day. But no judgment now for the church. Which church is even concerned that God will judge them? We've seen that even close to home in some of our own churches where difficult things were happening in a certain group of churches. And... Um, the elders in that presbytery said, this has been a really rough time for our churches and we don't have enough laborers and God isn't providing laborers and we're, we're losing ministers and elders and so on. Uh, please pray for us and move here to help us if you can. And one of the ministers said, well, before you ask for that, shouldn't you ask whether God is judging you? And a letter of complaint was sent against that minister because you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say what's in the Bible. You shouldn't you should quote the Bible to officers of the church. We trust in Mount Samaria, and God is pro-Samaria. He's pro-Israel, and he's pro-Christian. He's pro-reformed person. And we don't 
look at the condition of our churches and think about if anything we are doing provokes the Lord against our churches, our lack of reverence, our lack of zeal for the lost, our lack of experience of the very presence of God, or even things like you say, well, those people are terrible, they sold people off for a sandal and they they refuse to give justice at the gate. Do you think our do you think our churches don't do that? That when someone needs justice, when someone needs help, when someone is falsely accused, when someone needs something weighed in the balance properly, do you think our churches that everyone in them wakes up every day saying we we have to make sure that we don't wrong anyone else. No, those who are at ease, who have fat hearts, whose hearts are hard, see the mistakes or see the injustice or see the imbalance scales and they say, oh, we'll, we'll maybe do better next time. Don't think that there's no injustice in the Reformed Church. Well, let me close with this. Um, the nation puts off the day of doom the church, though it says it believes in the day of doom, it's basically doing the same thing and kind of puts it off because it's never going to happen to us now. Things, outbreaks of God's wrath among us, it happens. Ephesus is warned that she doesn't love Christ anymore and she better put that right or her candlestick will be removed Laodicea says I am I see I'm rich I have want of nothing and Christ uh, says that she's going to be judged if she doesn't be zealous and repent there's something in man that keeps pushing away the judgment of God but God will judge and he will chasten we're told in this chapter in verse 8 that he has sworn by himself the lord god of hosts says i abhor the excellency of jacob and hate his palaces i will deliver up the city and all that is in it he says later on in the passage behold the lord gives his command i will break the great house into pieces He's sworn and he's commanded it. God is decisive. He knows what needs to be done. He's a lot more righteous than you and I. He's holy. He hates sin. He doesn't play around with it. And he swears by himself that though we're sitting there doing it all in the name of Jesus, if we're doing it in ease and carnal security and materialism and affluence, he has sworn by himself that he abhors our pride and he gives the command that he will bring a judgment. Now, I'm not the one to tell you exactly where the line is for our, our churches right now in our nation as to, I mean, there's many areas of what's called the church and uh, the, the provocations they give God are quite shocking. But let's take our reformed area of the church, all the reformed churches I don't know where the line is, but ministers are being found out doing things they shouldn't be doing, living ungodly lives. There's 
there there is a lukewarmness and a lack of a lack of conviction and seriousness about the things of God. Um, the worship services are designed with the minister's readings and preaching are designed to say everyone here is in Christ. You are all the people of Christ. And there is no discrimination in the preaching. There isn't a lot of warning that comes from the pulpit. How much of that can go on? Then people start to tweak the worship and change the sacraments and become proud and boast about the things the church is doing. How much of that can go on before uh, God says, I abhor their pride and their ease? They are at ease in Zion. No one should be at ease in Zion. God's temple is there. The Shekinah glory is there. The altar of sin is there. There's blood being spilled there day after day in the temple. No one should ever be at ease in Zion and no one should... Out of all the churches, the Reformed churches should be the least at ease. Because we have doctrines of sin and so on intact. But the Lord is sworn by himself. The Lord of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. So let us beware as we leave, friends, that if we surround ourselves with self-pleasure and sumptuousness, if we fare sumptuously, and wear purple linen every day and have Lazarus at the gate of our house. If we're building bigger barns and we say, I have fared well, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Or let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we go to heaven. If we are at ease and our convictions aren't deepening, our sense of our own sin isn't deepening, our sense of the majesty and awfulness of our God and Father isn't deepening, our heart beating with depth of love and appreciation and emotion for the love that Jesus Christ has shown us. If we have no fear of the Holy Spirit and no expectation that he can pour out his glory and transform a nation and church, if we're fine the way we are and it doesn't bother us that much, that the whole nation, right up to the president, is just infested with sin and pride, and that the church doesn't do a lot better in a lot of ways. If that does not grieve us, we are at ease. And God says this as we close. Amos 5, verse 16. When he judges, the Lord God of hosts says... There shall be wailing in the streets, and they shall say in the highways, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmer to mourning, and the skillful lamenter to wailing. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing. For I will pass through you. Notice he doesn't pass over them. He passes through them in judgment. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Those are people that say, I want God to come down and rend the heavens. I want Jesus to come near. Really? What good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man had just fled from a lion 
but then a bear meets him. Or as though he went into the house and leaned his hand upon his wall, and then a serpent bites him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark, with no brightness in it? So, I mean, that, that's all about your perception. You and I must make sure, me, I desire the day of the Lord, but I have to make sure that it wouldn't be said of me, well, what good is the day of the Lord to you? You don't want God to come down and deal with you as you deserve because you think you fled from a lion and thinking God will save me from this lion, but it's a bear that meets him. God will judge the sinful nation and the sinful, compromising, lukewarm, easy church. It will not be light unto us when God pours out his glory. It would be darkness. Now listen to this just as I close. This is what he says to the church in that situation. I hate your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assembly. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offering. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Let justice run down like the water and righteousness like a mighty stream. See, when our hearts aren't right and we're not in Christ's security and we're not repentant and low and humble and filled with the fruit of the Spirit, grieved over the affliction of Joseph and living in holiness, we can read and sing all we want. But what he wants is righteousness in nation and in church. And while there's no righteousness in nation or national bodies of churches, they can gather in their conferences all they want and they can sing in Christ alone all they want or they can sing Psalm 23 or they... Can, they can sing, O oh, say, can you see? And they can put their hand here and be great patriots, president down to hotel cleaner, and God looks at it all and says, I hate it. Make sure that the God you know and believe and speak about is the true God, the God that loves certain things and hates other things. May God bless his word to us uh, this day.